Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available free of charge. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. Hello. Hello. This is the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Jamel Brinkley. His debut story collection is called A Lucky Man. It is out now from Grey Wolf Press. It is uh, generating a lot of excitement. I actually talked about this book on this program several weeks ago. I believe, if you know, if I recall correctly... I was reading listener mail. I was reading and responding to listener mail in the monologue. And one of my listeners asked me if there were any books that I was excited about. Anything that I'd heard a lot of buzz about that was coming down the line, something to that effect. And I mentioned Jamel Brinkley's A Lucky Man. All throughout the winter and spring, I've been hearing a steady drumbeat of enthusiasm about this book. And because I've been doing this for so long and because I'm Subjected to like every publicity email in the publishing business, it feels like I've gotten pretty good at detecting when, uh, you know, a book has really got some magic to it and the kinds of responses that people are having to this book just uh, distinguish themselves. So I'm excited if you have not heard of Jamel Brinkley to get a chance to introduce him and his work to you today. And uh, if you have heard of him, this will be a way to uh, get to learn a little bit more. He is a Stegner fellow or he's about to be a Stegner fellow, or I guess he is one, but it's actually going to start to to happen soon, if I'm remembering this right. But we talk about that, we talk about the book, and uh, it was just a pleasure to meet him. I am actually on vacation as you listen to this, as this episode makes its way out into the world. I'm at like a family reunion with my entire family, my wife and I, our kids, my sisters, their kids, they have six kids between them, each of them have three, my parents all of us under one roof for like eight nights. That ought to be great. It'll be fun. It'll be good. It won't be suffocating at all. We'll be fine. Everyone's going to get along. 
It's going to be fun. It's going to be very relaxing. Lots of relaxing. So my guest is Jamel Brinkley. His new story collection is called A Lucky Man. It's out there now from Grey Wolf Press. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamel Brinkley. The way that I think about it is I kind of have placed myself adjacent to writing and to literature for a very long time. And it it took me years and years and years to finally take that step and try to put writing at the center of my life. So, you know, I wrote as a kid, which is a typical writer uh, story, and I majored in English in college. Um, I was in a PhD program for English for a while, which I abandoned. Um, Why did you abandon it? As much as I I liked uh, grad school, I, I found that I got tired of the language, the academic language of grad school. So my experience was we would read sort of these great novels or, you know, other kinds of primary texts. And then we would show up for our seminars and it, the, those texts would become sort of the the playground for theory. Um, and I found my language getting highly theoretical, um, when you're writing papers for, for grad school, it's highly theoretical. And I just, I just don't love that language. Um, as much as I find a lot of it interesting and and smart and maybe necessary, I just don't like writing that way. So I think I was sort of forced out by, by the language. Yeah. Um, and from there, I, I actually worked for a couple years with, um, first-generation low-income students at an Upward Bound program um, in New York. Um, and I taught English with that program sometimes. Then I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's time to go back to grad school. So I actually went back to my Ph.D. program and thought I could do it this time, and I was completely wrong. Um, I was a horrible grad student. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> this is how we learn, though. you yeah. got to sort yourself out, you yeah. know? Yeah, it's true. Um, so then I left again. Um, and I actually taught high school English for four years, um, full time, which is, which is cause I've taught before mm-hmm. and I found that teaching really forces your hand. Like you really have to learn this stuff if you're going to teach oh, it. Yeah. So it's a great education it teaching. Is. And then it it's is. also, you know, the interaction with the students is its own yes. learning process. But I found that like teaching grammar, for example, mm-hmm. I never learned grammar as well as I did when I had to actually stand up in oh, front of yeah. people. Absolutely true. Yeah. I remember when I was hired for the job and, you know, just sort of going over what, what, um, the curriculum, what I would have to teach and the grammar component. I was like, you know what? I feel like I have an instinctive understanding of grammar, but now I need to really know it. You know, I got to know the names of things and really understand the way that sentences are put together. Um, which seemed sort of like a drag at first, but it was actually really helpful. Yeah. And I, like I, it's not, it's actually, I mean, it it provided you, you have some experience with it and did okay with it. I think when you, when you yourself were a student and, uh, there's something in there Yeah, and you're, you know, especially if you're a readerly person and literary person, but what I always tell people, if they ask me like, how do you learn to get really, I just get a, get a freshman grammar textbook absolutely, and do it. Absolutely. And then it, you, you, it's pretty sticky. You yeah. get it. You go, oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. It's like diagramming sentences and all that kind of garbage. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, but that's cool. And so then you, you taught for four years mm-hmm. and then. So during my, my second stint in the PhD program and those years teaching, I kind of was, was trying to write fiction on the side, which um, 
was okay. I wasn't that productive, you know, because I would have to sort of squeeze in fiction on a weekend or um, over a seasonal break or something like that. And I just got more and more interested in it. Um, and so one summer I decided to, when I was teaching, I, I decided to devote much of my summer to taking writing workshops. So this is in 2012. And I signed, I, I applied to maybe every summer writing conference in the country. Um, and I went to like four or five of them, which is insane. You, no one should ever do this right? <laughs> um, because it's exhausting. And yeah, it was a terrible idea in some ways. But I met people there, fellow writers and teachers who, who were great and so encouraging um, about my work. And so what did you have done at that point? I had one story. I was peddling around one story. Is it in the collection? Uh, a version of it is. Yeah. Which story is it? It's, um, the story is now called infinite happiness. Okay. Yeah. Back so then it was called something else. When you were starting like in these early motions toward taking writing seriously and you were just working on fiction and it turned out to be short fiction, or were you thinking to yourself, I'm going to make a collection of these things? Like how clear was your vision? Well, it wasn't clear. One thing I'm leaving out is that when I was when I was doing my second stint in the PhD program, instead of working on my dissertation, which I was supposed to be doing, I actually wrote a novel. I've heard this before. Yeah. From guests on this show who have like they were in a PhD. I can't remember who it was. But there are like two or three people. It's yeah. maybe not that uncommon for somebody who's doomed with this with this uh, <laughs> obsession. To be given one assignment yeah. and to wind up like you know coughing out a novel instead. Yeah, it's it's true. I you know I finished my my oral exams and you know the next stage was write your dissertation and every time I opened my laptop I couldn't do it. I couldn't write it and I just wrote this other thing, which was terrible. It was so bad. Um, what was it called? Oh, it was called the Compliant City. Okay, that's a, that's not embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. It's a line from um, a poem by Jay Wright. Um, I think the poem is called Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. So I just love that poem and I just grabbed that line. But my novel was horrible. Um, and I realized it was horrible. Um, and, you know, once I started teaching high school, I didn't have time to work on a huge thing. I just had to sort of inch my way through one story. When would you do it? Um, occasionally on weekends, like weekdays were out. There's no way, you know, I'd come home from teaching and just basically have a glass of wine and, you know, watch Netflix. Or yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Um, so weekends, if I felt up to it, sometimes weekends were just about recovery mode. Um, I mean, you know, the thing about being an English teacher is that you're bringing work home all the time. So it's not as though... Teaching is fun. Teaching is fun. Teaching is fun. Grading is a pain in Grading the ass. Is, <laughs> it's horrible. It's so bad. Yeah. And... You know, I always had student papers to grade. So sometimes even on weekends when I wanted to write, I would just have a stack. I'm like, okay. Um, so mostly I think I did my writing over, over break. So winter break, um, you know, the, the short Thanksgiving break, uh, summer break was, was a great time. Um, and that was it. And I, I got one story done. But and you, I took it around in 2012 to, to all these writing conferences. But it started to open the door a little bit and people started to respond to your work yes. and the, the responses were positive. Yes, they were positive. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Did these writing conferences help you in a significant way? Like, like what, what did you get from those? Just like a space and a community? Or did you actually come away like, wow, I've really sharpened myself? I think I sharpened myself. Um, one, one thing I'm pleased with in terms of my process of applying and then choosing teachers is that I kind of did my research. So I would randomly reach out or like sort of ask or try to get a sense of, of um, the teacher's reputation. So I ended up with fantastic teachers. Which um, matters. Yeah. Who did, like, can you, would you name drop? Sure. Um, Antonia Nelson, uh-huh. um, who was fabulous. Um, Lee K. Abbott, who was fabulous. Um, Charles D'Ambrosio, who's, I think, a genius. Um, and Lance Samantha Chang, who was great. Wow. Yeah. And, and what did they do for you? Like, what, what, does it, what does a good teacher of creative writing do? Do you have a sense? I think a good teacher for me is someone who, I mean, because anyone can come into a classroom and say, you know, show, don't tell, or, you know, something like that, some rule. By the way, that's, that's all I have, <laughs> in case you were wondering. <laughs> But I think I think what those teachers did was they they re, I I saw them responding to every story on its own terms, you know. So there wasn't you know a set of rules they, that they tried to cart from story to story to story. Um, in other words, they weren't trying to get everyone to write the same kind of story. So I felt them re- really sort of flexible and malleable and intelligently engaging with what was on the page. And, and that was great. Um, and, I, and I sort of felt like in the end, what they all did and what they all provided an example of was, was really just, just paying very close attention to the words on the page, like respecting the language, reading slowly, reading carefully, um, and accepting the possibility that the stuff you write down is actually a little bit smarter than you are. You know, so the stuff that comes out, you have an idea of what you want to write. It's like but... when it's like when Hemingway. I think, I mean, not to sound precious, but Hemingway. I think once said something like, you know, some days I I'm better than I am, or something like that. Yeah. Like some days you write better than I am. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I do believe that when when you're writing, you're writing with more than your conscious mind. So you have your intentions, and you think you're writing down exactly your intentions, but you're not. You know, and in some ways you fall short of your intentions, but other ways you exceed them. And those moments of exceeding them are interesting to me because you reread your own work and you're like, wait a minute, why is that there? Yeah. Let me follow that thread. And then the story instantly becomes more interesting. Is there a similarity in terms of construction of the stories in your collection? Like, did, was did they follow any kind of similar path in terms of how they were built and how the revision process went and, or how the, how they germinated to begin with. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, Hmm. I feel like 
there was always a a kernel, a seed, um, usually from from life. And what that seed was might have varied. So it could have been a place. So there's a story. The last story in the collection is um, about a bar in Brooklyn, which is based on a real bar that I've been to. So that was the seed. I just wanted to write about this place that I had been to and was interesting to me for whatever reason. Um, or, you know, there's a story in there about um, the martial art dance capoeira, which comes out of my own experience. I was wondering how to pronounce that. Yeah. It's capoeira. Capoeira. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You're a martial artist? I am, I'm, I'm slowly getting back into it. I kind of fell out of the capoeira practice. What, um, what is it? It's dance ago. plus martial arts? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of hard to describe, but um, it's d- described variously as a game, a dance, a martial art. Um, it's, it's this sort of hybrid form. It's really sort of fascinating. Um, and the roots of it come from, from Africa through Brazil. Um, and it's just sort of fascinating. It's layered in the way that I think the best fiction is layered. I think it's a really fascinating form, um, which is why I wrote about it. But it's it's a little hard to describe. Wow. Could you demonstrate for me? <laughs> you don't want me to do that. I'm going <laughs> to ruin your beautiful studio. <laughs> Um, and so you, uh, you start with, you say you have like some sort of kernel, some sort of obsession, yeah. but it doesn't begin with like a title or a person it begins with like an image, an image. It can be a place. Um, it could be a, like the shadow of a character, you know, cause the, the character doesn't come to me fully formed. So it could be a sort of t- a type of person, um, or it could be a memory, you know? So there's a story in the collection about, um, kids who are, bust out of the city to to suburban private swimming pools um that happened you know i I was in a day camp in the bronx where the highlights of the summer were when we would all get bussed out to you know various suburbs westchester wherever wherever it was um to people's private swimming pools and we we loved it you know it was it was this thrilling thing to do um and it wasn't until later where i was like that's very odd yeah right <laughs> like people's houses people's houses yeah 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 that's always a... someone's house it was never like a community pool or anything like that it was always someone's. and house. how many kids it would be you know maybe a dozen or so okay mm-hmm. that's like kind of manageable kind of but still chaotic yeah definitely chaotic <laughs> yes uh, and then like you know i was reading uh your collection in the like whenever i read really good short fiction there's a, like a mysteriousness to it I'm always like sort of amazed by where they end Hmm. and how they sort of leave me feeling like, ah, it's over. But like, of course it's over. It's Mm -hmm. like, like, how do you get to that point? Like, do you have a a sense of definition as to what short fiction is supposed to achieve? Like, is there any kind of definition out there that I'm missing? Because that's interesting. Is there a definition? I don't know if there is one. Um, I just think it feels it feels like it feels somehow like a complete experience. Um, I think all the best short fiction is well shaped and you may not realize what the shape is as you're reading it. But I think when you finish a story and it feels right, you start to recognize what the shape of the story was, why it started where it did, why it ended where it did. Um, and the journey that you took from beginning to end. 
And, you know, for short fiction, you can hold all of that together. You know, you can sort of see it and hold it in your mind um, in the way that I think you probably can't do with a novel because a novel is so capacious and can wander and go all over the place. So short fiction feels like something that, that you can hold in your hands um, and you can see the shape of it. Um, and as you're writing it, I'm imagining like you're sort of, it's like a pairing away and then adding and then yeah. it's like, you know, there's constant revision going yes. on and then finally you get to a place where you're like that's it yeah that's the shape yeah and a lot of that is intuition it is that's where talent comes in is it talent I, I mean well it's also like the persistence the willingness to sit there and like yeah stare at it over and over again yeah. that might be the talent <laughs> but i mean maybe so yeah uh but but you know in a way that is clear and open and not clouded with too many critical thoughts or uh, complaints i'm speaking from experience yeah. you know where you're sitting there kind of like getting exhausted by it like you yeah. have to have a certain patience of mind and a certain consistency of vision yeah in order to stick with it right and then you also i think have to be well read enough to be able to recognize shapes yeah like that's i think where a lot of the like the strength of one's creative intuition about such things is formed yeah so i'm taking i take it you've read a lot of short fiction i have yeah um, although I feel like my, my, my education in short fiction started pretty late. Um, I feel like, you know, whenever I was in English classes or literature classes, we were reading novels, you know, and occasionally you would have a poem thrown in or, you know, a canonical short story be thrown in. But I don't really ever remember taking a class, for example, that was devoted to short fiction, um, before going to an MFA program. Um, so I feel like it's only in the last five or six years that I've gotten pretty well versed in, in short fiction. And it seems like the short, like the reason you are debuting with a story collection, among other reasons, I mean, I think so, like what comes out of you comes out of you, yeah. but a lot of it is just a function of necessity. Like these, this is how much time you had. You were working in small pockets. Right. And so the art you made was naturally yeah. reflective of that. Yeah. And so if you, I would imagine if you have a bigger chunk of time in yeah. the days ahead, you'll probably do a novel. Yeah, maybe. You know what, though? I, when, when, I, um, when I went to my MFA program, I thought that I would work on a novel. You went to Iowa? I did go to Iowa. Okay. How was that? It turned out to be pretty great for me, actually. Um, I had, had some hesitations going in, especially leaving New York for the first time ever. For Iowa. Life, for Iowa, <laughs> of all places. Right. Um, in fact, when I visited the program before I um, decided to go there, I remember, you know, Going, landing and being in this airport that was maybe the size of this studio um, and sort of driving out from the airport through literal cornfields and just saying to myself, I can't do this. Like, I'm not, I can't do this. There's no way I'm moving here for two or three years. Um, but I got there and, you know, met people and actually saw the town within the cornfields and thought, you know what, I think maybe... I can do this. Maybe it's a great, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. 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 How did, what, what did you use to get in? Like what stories did you use in your application? I used, um, I used a version of the first story in the collection. Um, no more than a bubble, which I worked on after that summer of taking many writing workshops. So I used that and I used part of what I thought might be a novel, just a few pages of it. Um, but I never went back to that thing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, there's like, there's a, uh, a quality to your fiction. And I think this is part of like, part of what is 
has so many people so excited where I was reading it and I was like, wow, this feels really lived in. Hmm. Like this feels like, and I love that. I love as a reader, I always love to feel like I'm, oh, there's the writer. Like I'm always searching for the author, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, a part of why I do this show. And, yeah. But then I get to like another story, which is com- like, feels like totally removed. Yeah. And I'm like, but this feels lived in too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that means you did your work. Like there's the magic trick, yeah. uh, or you've just lived a lot of lives. And I guess I feel like growing up in a place like the Bronx or a place like Brooklyn, mm-hmm. You, or a place like Los Angeles versus growing up where I grew up in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I don't want to diminish like a Midwestern upbringing. Cause I think there's, you know, things to be found everywhere, Yeah, but come on, you're exposed to so much. Oh yeah. Just like, you know, it's just out there every day in the street and you're walking around and you're seeing things that like, I didn't see when I was yeah. growing up. So you naturally you would internalize that and it shows up in your work. Yeah, it feels like my experience of New York was that there were many New Yorks. Um, and I feel like I had different phases of, of my experience in that city. So growing up, up, up through high school, I kind of was a little sheltered, you know. Um, and this was in the Bronx? This or? was in the Bronx, mostly. Um, I lived in the Bronx from third grade until the end of high school. Um, before that, I was in Brooklyn. And... You know, it was it was sort of like I spent a lot of time at home. Um, I didn't really explore the city very much. Um, so those years were sort of about going to school, coming home, occasionally hanging out with some friends, but pretty much being at home reading is what I did. Your parents, like you come from like an artistic family or? No. Um, well, my, I was raised by my mom until... Um, she met my stepfather. So neither of them are artistic. Um, no, but my mom was, has always been, um, a really active reader. Um, she loved to read. And I think that, you know, it, it was important to her that I read too. Some of my earliest memories are libraries, public libraries. And I was, I loved going to the library. Um, so, so that she definitely put her stamp on me just, just as a reader, um, which was crucial, but, you know, I I had a different experience of the city. Once I went to college, I went to college in the city too, at Columbia. And once I was there, it was sort of like a whole different version of the city opened up. I had the freedom to go where I wanted and, you know, started eating out and trying different foods and, um, going downtown and going to Brooklyn and going to parties and, um, then it was like, oh, this is New York too. Right. You know, it's not just what's in the South Bronx. Well, they, these are gigantic yeah. hives of humanity. Yes. These big cities. Yes. And I was just having a conversation with a friend yesterday or two days ago where I was talking about Los Angeles cause he's in town visiting and he's like, it just seems like a simulation is what he said. And I said, yeah, I was like, I've lived here for almost 20 years and almost every day I look around and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? Yeah. And, or I'll be driving through some part of town that I've never driven through, yeah. which is very easy to do. Oh yeah. There's no way to pot, unless you're an Uber driver mm-hmm. and even then you're going to miss things. Mm-hmm. You're going to, there's just entire huge swaths of the city that I, I have never laid eyes on and probably never will. Yeah. But every once in a while I'll drive through a neighborhood and be like, wow, what is this? Yeah. Like what's happening here? Yeah. I had no idea. I had no idea this was even here. Yeah. Uh, so they can kind of continue. They, it's like this, there's an eternal newness. Yes. 
And yeah. You, you never fully wrap your head around it. It's true. And, you know, the funny thing about New Yorkers, like, New Yorkers can be really um, sort of parochial in a way, um, just sort of limited in their experience. So, you know, a proud New Yorker will go on and on about whatever borough he or she lives in. Um, but then you say, well, you know, uh, what do you know about Queens? I don't go to Queens, yeah. you know, never or, been. I, I've never <laughs> been to Staten Island, you know, yeah. there's so much there that even if you're sort of a, you know, a, a flag waving, uh, New Yorker, you probably have no idea what it's like there. So what, is, what's your borough? What, what do you claim? Do you claim the Bronx? Do you claim Brooklyn or, you know, I, I claim Brooklyn, which might be controversial because a lot of my formative years were in the Bronx. Um, but there were a lot of reasons why I, I don't claim the Bronx. Um, I think at that point in my life, I was unhappy about a lot of things. Um, like what? Family situation. You know, um, our family was going through some difficult times. Um, and and the household wasn't peaceful. Right. And it didn't become peaceful until um, I was in high school. Then it got better. Um but, you know, once I left, once I went to Columbia to college, I lived on campus. And once I left campus, I, I went to Brooklyn. So I never looked back to the Bronx. So I have a lot of uh, negative um, memories about the Bronx. Plus, you were, you were an adolescent, right? I was, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, no matter, even if you have a peaceful household, right. you're an adolescent, you're going to be like, fuck that place. Yeah. You know? oh, totally. <laughs> totally. Totally. I had that, like, because I split my childhood between, like, Milwaukee and Indianapolis. And Indianapolis is where I did high school and mm -hmm. junior high and I have less like rosy memories of it. Yeah. And I think that's, I've always theorized that that's a, a reason why I, mean, I met great friends there and yeah. it's not a terrible place, but yeah, I just, I idealize like the early youth, like, you know, running around in the woods in mm -hmm. Wisconsin and I'm like, that was like Narnia, you mm -hmm. know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but then you get out and you're not even that far away. You're at Columbia. Yeah. But it feels like a completely new oh, existence. Completely. I, I feel like I'm pretty sure I'd have to ask my mom if this is true, but I'm pretty sure in my first couple of years at Columbia, like I almost never came home. Did you go crazy? Did you do a ton of drugs? Did you like, did you have like a, I'm free kind of experience like I had, or was it, uh, was it relatively tame? Cause I, I have friends who grew up in the city and who sort of like got all that stuff out of their system when they were like 14. Yeah. And then they like, but I'm one of those kids from like the Midwestern suburbs who like, I was innocent and I got to be 18 and I was like, now I'm out of the, right. you know? Yeah. I didn't go too crazy. I think at the time I, I, uh, thought I was going crazy, but basically it just meant drinking for the first time <laughs> or like, you know, smoking weed for the first time, but I wasn't, you know, nuts. Yeah. I wasn't going nuts. And but by the way, there, there's a sliding scale for that stuff. Like every, every time I start to like chastise myself for maybe not taking the greatest care of myself or going a little bit off the rails. Mm -hmm. I like, look at like Keith Richards or do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like I was fine. Yeah. You so, were fine. Why am I like mythologizing my youth? Like it was some sort of like, you know, legendary debauchery. Yeah. Like, it really was pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure mine was, was tame. Even though at the time I was like, wow, <laughs> this is incredible. I'm living a college life. Yeah. Yeah. But the, I don't know. And there's that, like, to have the whole city and to have all that energy of youth, that's a good mix. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I feel like, I feel like, um, the thing that was important to me too at that time is I feel like college was the first time I, I made 
friends I was fully comfortable with. In high school, I sort of felt like I was the B or C level friend. You know, I could sort of attach myself to a crew, but they they were you know, like, yeah, you're like the you're like a minor member of this crew. <laughs> we don't really like you that much, um, or you're okay, but you're a little embarrassing um, for whatever reason. You know, because of my haircut, or because of my clothes, or because you know the kind of music that I liked, or what have you. What did but, you like? You know, I I actually liked a lot of what they liked, but I I, I think. I wasn't the sort of person who could claim it, you know? So, you know, in the nineties, I was totally into like hardcore rap. I was listening to, you know, Onyx, you know, groups like that or House of Pain, you know, stuff like that. But if you looked at me, you'd be like, no, man, you can't, you, no, that's not for you. <laughs> right. You need to go and listen to, you know, soft rock or something. <laughs> um, but, you know, I like that music um, at the same time that I like groups like, you know, Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and, you know, The Roots. Um, and it wasn't until college where I feel like I met people who, who were very much like me, you know, liked all the same kind of music, kind of awkward, nerdy guys and girls. Um, and that was great, you know, and we could sort of, you know, um, explore the city based on what we liked together, you know, and totally got into hip-hop shows and you know the underground like backpack hip-hop parties um what's that, that? what really is a backpack hip-hop party backpack hip-hop is sort of like i don't know if it's a thing anymore um but it's sort of like there's commercial rap and then there's the more authentic you know i'm on the street corner and a circle of friends freestyling i got my backpack on oh right um you know maybe the music is low production values but uh, the beats are great, you know. Um, backpackers would say stuff like keeping it real, you know. Sure. Um, but I, I love that scene, you know. Yeah. Um, going to these small clubs to hear groups perform. That was those are some of my my favorite memories of those years. And just the and just being able to reinvent yourself. Yeah. That's so totally. nice. That's yeah. like such a you know you know it can be such a relief. Yes. If you go to a new place, you kind of start fresh. Yeah. You're meeting people. Nobody knows you. Yeah. Nobody has any context. Yeah. So you can start to kind of refine your own sense of yourself. And uh, I haven't done that in a long time. I, get, I, don't, I don't know if like it gets harder as you get older. Oh, I mean, yeah. I've totally. lived in this place a long time. Yeah. I have a family. I have kids. We have friends. It's like, I guess like if you go traveling, you can have like a taste of it. Yeah. For a couple of weeks. Yeah. I think what what I didn't realize then is it takes a tremendous amount of energy to reinvent yourself. It's hard. Mm -hmm. um, it's not something, you know, even though nobody knows you and even though whatever face you put forward, they may think it's just who you've always been. It's a lot because you haven't been that person. So to, to, to sort of play that role, it's it takes a tremendous amount of energy. And as you get older, it's just like a... Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't have time for this. No, I don't have, time I don't have the energy for reinvention. Yeah. I sort of am who I am. Yeah, exactly. But I do think, uh, what is it? Like be the person or what? Be the person you imagine yourself to be. There's some Kurt Vonnegut quote that I'm reaching for. Um, just basically means that like, you know, like who you, who we are is an act of creation. Mm -hmm. So it's good to, put some real thought into yeah. it. Like put on a show, put on the show you want to see in the world. Right. You know? like, yeah. I hope, and hopefully true. it rings true. I mean, you want to be authentic as well. Yeah. You don't want people to think you're like some sort of imposter. Yeah. 
Um, so, okay. So we sort of jumped around because we were talking about Iowa and then we got back to the Bronx and Brooklyn yeah. and Columbia. And then I know we sort of covered some of the middle ground too, mm-hmm. when you were going through the PhD program and right. you were teaching. Yeah. So let's fast forward then again and go back to Iowa. Sure. You get to Iowa, you make the decision. I'm going to go live in the cornfields for two or three years. Mm-hmm. And the adjustment was okay. Surprisingly it was. Um, I, I thought it was going to be a big challenge. Um, and I remember someone who, so I, I applied to a bunch of MFA programs, including some in New York. And I remember someone who was trying to recruit me to stay at a program in New York or to go to a program in New York said, you're not going to be inspired out there in the cornfields. You know, like the, the energy is here. Like this is, this is it. This is what feeds your writing. You know, I've read your work. I, I know that if you leave, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to regret it. It's like exile. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew it was a sales pitch, but I started to worry about that. Um, but you know what? It it wasn't a problem at all. Mm. Um, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I feel like getting away sometimes can be good. Give you perspective. Absolutely. And I think I was, you know, the main thing is I was so grateful for the gift of time. I had no time as a high school English teacher, none, you know, again, except summer break. Um, so to have uninterrupted time, I remember my first few weeks there, I'd moved in, I'd set up my work area and I was sort of like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I just wasn't sure because it was so strange. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be writing. Right. I can do that. Um, so it was great. The biggest adjustment for me really was how quiet it was. It was sort of noisily quiet. You know, I remember that when I moved here mm. from a much smaller town, like in my college town, feeling like everything was moving quickly and was louder. I just, I just noticed that it was like the speed and the sound. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you get used to it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it works in reverse. Like eventually you slowed down a little bit or got used to the yeah. quiet. Yeah, totally. I did. Um, but it was, it was really strange. I would sort of lie awake at night feeling assaulted by the silence, you know, where are the noises where, you know, and occasionally you'd have some frat boys. Where's the sirens? Like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah where's the exactly. helicopters when exactly. I, in Los Angeles? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The most noise I would get was from frat boys, you know, coming by, but right. it was quiet, but it was great. Once and you I got get, used to it. And you have a community too. Yes. Which helps. I, Cause I mean, I think like you move to some completely new place and you're sort of on your own, but you're also, they have like a structure it's like a built-in structure. You're going into these workshops, you're meeting people who have the same obsessions as mm-hmm. you. I found it like when I was in my graduate program, like that was such a comfort. It's almost like you're in an insane asylum sitting in a circle with like all the other people, crazy people. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it's like. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was a big program. Wait, where did you go? Where was your graduate? Program? At USC. Oh, USC. Cool. Um, it's a big program. It's one of the larger MFA programs. So there are, you know, 50 new writers coming in per year, if you, if you count fiction and poetry. So a hundred writers in the program. Um, it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of artistic energy. It's a lot of anxiety too. Well, there's also people who go to Iowa, I think in particular, maybe Irvine as well, you know, Columbia, NYU. Like there are certain programs that Mm -hmm. I feel like draw, uh, the most ambitious. Yeah or tend to at least. Right. And people come in there with sharp elbows sometimes. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Those were, I've heard, I've, I've had, I've heard different things. I've heard some people just rave about it. Yeah. I've had some people say like, I, I was miserable. Yeah. But they usually said it was good for them. Right. In, in the long haul, you know, like looking back, they learned a lot or. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's still those range of experiences there, but it's gotten way better. I mean, I, I've, I've heard some horror stories about what it used to be like, you know, in, in the eighties, the nineties, even in the early two thousands, um, just the level of competitiveness because of the way that the program was set up. But the new direct, well, she's not new anymore, but the current director um, has done a lot to, to address that and change the culture of the program. I have been thinking so much lately, just to interject my own like neuroses into this conversation a little Please bit do. more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I've been thinking about ambition, which I think is uh, relevant to you and me and to everybody listening and maybe to everybody, period. Like trying to make sense of whether or not it's a virtue, trying to make sense of whether or not it's an affliction. Like there's a tension between those two. Mm -hmm. And I think in America we're sort of enculturated or taught to believe just like it's a virtue. Anybody who's like really striving and yeah. really wants to go do big things, like it's a virtuous thing as opposed to uh, maybe something that could uh, harm us or do harm to the world. Mm -hmm. Like I struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Like there's a part of me that's like, you know what? I want to tamp that element of my human self down. Mm -hmm. Or at least I want to be really clear about the why. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I so driven to do X? What do I want? Is it like self-aggrandizement? Is it money? Is it uh, everybody clapping for me? Is it some like good deed in the world that's going to like help other people? You know what I'm saying? Like there are different whys. Yeah. So like when you think uh, about your own trajectory as a creative writer, like, did you ever have that conversation with yourself? Like, why am I doing this? Why am I in Iowa? Why am I writing these fictions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, first of all, I think the fact that you're even asking that question is is a testament to your character. Because I, I don't think a lot of people do. You know, people who are ambitious are just that. And they don't think about why. You know, it's it's sort of just this really kind of narrow blinders on ambition. Um, and I think, you know, to even interrogate that is, is an important step. Um but yeah, I've thought about it. I mean, I think for me, I think it has to do with what reading certain books has made me feel. So it's not so much that, you know, say James Baldwin is a great writer and I want to be great like James Baldwin. It's more like when I read Sonny's Blues, it's one of the most powerful experiences that I have. And the fact that he wrote that and it was published, it's like a gift, you know, given to readers. So I kind of think about it that way. I'm trying to, trying to give that kind of experience to others, trying to impart that kind of experience to others, thinking about it in sort of a, in an outward going way, as opposed to me, 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 my ambition, my, you know, um, and what does that do? What does, what does uh, Sunny Spoos do for you? A story like that, I mean, there are certain things I read that just feel like a miracle, whether it's because of just a pleasure of language itself, um, whether it's the insight he seems to have into human beings um, in general, um, into brotherhood specifically. Um, and again, that story, which seems to have no plot really, you know, Antonia Nelson talks about this. It's so beautifully shaped when you study it, um, and it just—it just sort of feels like this this beautiful creation, this beautiful accomplishment. Um, 
not to be admired as an object, but, but something that does something that something that, that affects me and makes me reflect on my own life or reflect on my own relationship with my brother, um, or think about, you know, the kind of language that I use, um, the way that people can be kind or cruel. It just has all these effects, um, that I think help me live. Yeah. That's a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, I think that, uh, I think there is a way to do, like there's a way to do both. You you know, you can aspire to make art that works on a certain, uh, on a, a similar level. And that reaches a lot of people. Yeah. I don't think it's bad to want a readership. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or an audience. You want, I mean, you're trying to communicate with people. Right. But that can't be like maybe primary. Yeah. Or what are you trying to communicate? You know, I mean, I was thinking about this because I feel like I, I might have gotten an interview question about this recently. Um, about, you know, why? How do you, how do you think about the, the arrogance or the hubris of, of right. Why should anyone care what you write? And it's an interesting question, but I feel like, especially in this moment when our culture, our political culture is just so full of cruelty and dishonesty and it's, it's horrible. It's so bad. It's really toxic. It's really toxic. And to me, you know, just sort of moving beyond the pure aesthetic value of, of literature or any art form um, and thinking about it more instrumentally, if we're living in a toxic culture where the way that we talk to each other has is, is just been poisoned, it's useful. It's a good thing to try to um, put a different form of communication out there. It's a good thing to try to connect with people in a way that that is at least attempting to be honest, mm. you know? So I, I think that's important. I think it's important that we have that kind of discourse and then we have that kind of um, relationship to each other where we're connecting on a different level and it's not just, you know, pylons on Twitter or, I you was going to say. Yeah. And, but, you know, and the other thing I was going to say when you were talking about Baldwin is that I have noticed on Twitter uh, that I've seen his name and memes and quotes from him mm-hmm appearing frequently over the past couple of years. Yeah. Like his, you know, his words have risen up. They have. Like people are reaching for him Mm -hmm. at this time. Like that's, there's something to be reflected upon there. Mm -hmm. You know, he's very useful right now. He is. He is. He's very useful. And that's what I mean. You know, when I'm reading him or reading whoever else, um, it feels necessary. It doesn't just feel like idle pleasure even though it is that too, it is pleasurable for me to read, you know, and I realize that for me to even have the time to read recreationally is a gift, but it feels necessary. It feels like if I didn't have this stuff, I'm not sure how I would make it from day to day. Yeah. It's like, it's like the stars you steer by, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know how to, uh, especially when things get tough in life, like I'm not reaching for the remote control. I mean, maybe sometimes I am, but usually it's books. Yeah. You know, it's like the, it's like the slow food. It's, it feels the best, Yeah, but it's the hard, but it takes the most effort. It does. You know, you have to kind of roll up your sleeves to be with a book, but if you do the work, then the payoff is greater. Yeah. Especially when you hit on one that like really gets down into your bones. Right. And then, then you're, then you're screwed. Then, then you're stuck with it forever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about, you know, your time at Iowa and the, the, uh, you know, the pages are piling up, you're writing this collection. Mm -hmm. 
And I, did you finish it while you were there or did you finish it after you left? I, um, so I spent three years in Iowa. So I graduated after two years and then, um, I got a third year fellowship where I taught and, and, and wrote. So I wrote, I had drafts of every story that's in the collection by the time I graduated. And I revised every story in the collection by the time my third year there was finished. How many times are you revising? Like just, you know what I'm saying? Like how, what does it look like generally? Oh man. Um, it, it depends on the story. Um, I've actually kind of taken on this, this really meticulous sort of anal <laughs> revision method. Um, do you know the writer Robert Boswell? I mean, I've heard. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's got this, uh, revision method that I was introduced to. He calls it transitional drafts. So basically the idea is, you know, you take a workshop and you get all this feedback from various people. Like, what do you do with it? The worst thing you can do is try to do what everyone says. Right. So you sort of sit with all your feedback and then look at the things that seem to make sense. And then See, the problem with me is everything makes sense. Oh, yeah. I believe everything. I'm like, okay, well, I should do that then. Yeah. You know, it gets hard for me to know what's best and what's not, you know, what's to be left. Yeah. That's true sometimes. I think that the, the sort of oddly useful thing about being in an MFA program and if, you, and if you're in a workshop with the same people over and over again, you can sort of figure out who you should listen to. Right. <laughs> That's correct. Um. Anyway, so so this method involves um, deciding what areas you want to to work on in your story, and each draft you're only doing one thing. So instead of trying to do everything in the next draft, you know maybe a problem with your story is dialogue. So you just have a draft where you're looking at all the dialogue and working on the dialogue, and that's your draft, and you save it as you save it on your computer as dialogue, uh, revision. And then the next thing might be, um, that the characters aren't fully fleshed out. So you didn't, you just work on, you know, description of the characters and that's a draft that's, oh. you just work on one thing at a time. So it seems really annoying and, and you definitely come as you're reading over the draft, you come across things, oh, I should fix that. But then you're like, no, no, no. I, that's the next draft. I have to leave that there. I'm focusing on one thing. So I've kind of, I don't do as many drafts as he does. He claims to have done like 50 to 75 to a hundred drafts of stories, which I kind of believe. Um, I never get that far, but I certainly get into, you know, a dozen or more drafts sure. of a story. That makes sense yeah. though. Cause it, I, I think it's very easy, especially with word processing programs mm -hmm. where editing is so easy. You just delete. You can, find yourself getting bogged down and sidetracked. It's almost like the, your book becomes the internet. You're taking like, you're making these lateral moves yes. and you're spending all this time. Yeah. And then you look up and you're like, wow, I'm on page three. I'm fucking with this one paragraph that I thought was done yeah. when I came here to do X. And so it's sort of, I don't know, it gives a structure to your revision program or process. Yeah. Yeah. That internet comparison is actually really apt. I, I've, I've definitely had early revision experiences where it feels like you just have 75 tabs open on your browser, you know, you don't know, you don't even know what you're looking for anymore. It's just, everything is there. Um, it's going into this rabbit hole. Um, and so this keeps me focused and honest and very specific and it feels painful and it feels like, Oh, what am I even doing? Is, is the story even improving? But it works for me. 
And do you have a set? Like, I mean, you talk about character, you talk about dialogue, you talk about maybe setting or exposition. Like, is there a list of things that are, that carry over from story to story? Um, not necessarily. Um, I, th I think it sort of depends on, you know, and again, these are revisions that are coming out of workshop experiences. So it depends on what the conversation was about in the workshop. So, um, it's not like I go through a dialogue revision with every story I've written. So it sort of depends on what the hotspots are and depending on the workshop. I like your dialogue. Do you? Yeah. Oh, I like, cause I, I usually don't. Like I notice it for good reasons. Like these are just, they're just such like idiosyncratic things mm -hmm. for the characters to be saying. And they're so indicative of a uh, place. And I don't know, there's something very individual yeah. about it. It's hard for me to describe, but I noticed it. I was like, oh, this is good. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. I always think that that's one thing I really need to keep working on. Is I'm like, oh, I don't know if I've got it. You know, you read writers who have amazing dialogue, like, you know, Laurie Moore, you know, someone like that. Um, and you're like, ah, oh, just, I'm not doing it right. Yeah. Well, but yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, no, I thought it was great. <laughs> um, and so when do you know you're done? It's just intuition. I think it's intuition. Um, I think, yeah, you feel it. I'm one of those writers who, you know, like Everett P. Jones, for instance, he, he, the way that he works is he sort of thinks about the story in his head. He doesn't start writing until he has the whole story in his mind. I'm amazed by people who can do that. I know. I am too. How is that possible? I, you know, that's a lot of thinking. Yeah, it is. So, you know, I remember he actually came to Iowa and, and said, you know, writers say that they don't want to know the ending. And he kind of like made fun of that whole idea. He's like, no, you got to know, you got to know the story. You got to have it in your head and, and you write it. And I'm like, man, that sounds great. I could never do that. I sort of get, I sort of get the idea of knowing like the ending in a, in a general way. Yeah. So that at least, you know, where, like what your destination is. Yeah. But along the way there's surprises. Yeah. I totally get that. Like writing towards an ending, but you don't know the path. Um, I'm the sort of writer who doesn't want to know the ending, um, until I'm very close to it. And I think it is intuitive. You know, I start to feel that I'm getting there like a page or two before I'm there. Maybe I'm in the paragraph and I'm like, oh, I think this is it. Like just stop there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes you write past your ending, you know, and you have to sort of cut back and, and find it like, oh no, it should have ended there. You know, I, I went too far. Um, but I sort of like the process of, of feeling out an ending, even though it's, it's really frustrating and there's a lot of pressure on that moment, you know, yeah. where's this going to land? Right. If you get that wrong, then the whole thing just falls apart. It really feels, I mean, it feels that way. Endings are hard. They are. Like I know in a novel, you're trying to kind of like synthesize all of the different storylines and make it feel like it's whole and yeah. that there's an emotional resolution that's satisfying. And I think the same is, is true of short fiction to a degree, but there's also, there's just like some sort of like emotional note or something. Mm -hmm. I don't have the language for it, yeah. but your stories do it beautifully where you're like, ah, <laughs> like, you know, it hits just, and it's kind of like uh, the best I've ever heard anybody describe what an ending should do in literature is that it should be both surprising and feel inevitable at yes. the same time. Yeah. And like, that's what it is. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's maybe, I don't know. It's hard to get to that. It is hard. Um, one way of thinking about endings that I like is, um, one of my teachers says that an ending is not a thing on its own. It's the result of something else. 
So, you know, people in workshops will say, oh, the ending is something wrong with the ending. And he's like, you know what? When people think there's a problem with the ending, oftentimes it's a problem earlier in the story, you know, um, or what we have here hasn't taken fully into account everything else that's happened in the story. So the ending itself is not its own separate thing. It's just a result of everything else that's happened in the story. And I kind of like that idea. Yeah. You know, um, well, it gives you, it gives you like a criteria. Like yeah. if you're, if you're looking at the ending of your story, you can say, well, look, is this addressing, right. You know? Yeah. It's all those threads. Yeah. Somehow got to touch on those things. Yes, exactly. So you finished this collection when? Like during your third year while you were teaching? During my third third year. Well, the, the funny story is, I mean, we're talking about it as though I, you know, finished the last story and said, ah, I'm done with this collection, <laughs> which is not the way it happened. So um, what happened was my second year at Iowa, I met the person who became my literary agent. Who is? Um, Jin Ah. Okay. Um, and when I met her, I had no clue that I had no sense that she would actually be interested in me because I had, I think I had two or three stories done to show her a, their stories, you know, which a lot of agents are not super interested in. Um, B there were three of them. So it's not as though I had a book to show her, but, but these are longer stories. These aren't like little micro fictions. That's true. That's true. But still, I was surprised that on the strength of two or three stories, she said, you know, I want to work with you. So what happened from, from then on, so that third year, as I finished revising a story, I would send it to her. So I would send her a story one by one by one. So I think I had sent her a seventh story. And she either called or emailed and said, okay, great. I think we're ready to go. And I said, where are we going? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know what she was talking about. Yeah. So she sort of laughs at me. She's like, look, you write these kind of long stories. Um, we have seven of them. I think we're ready to, to go out and to send, send these to, to publishers. And was she trying to publish? Did were you were funneling them to like, uh, literary reviews or magazines or anything? Yeah. So some of them are getting published along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. My first two stories were published with, um, a public space, which is based in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. So they're sort of going out and, you know, with varying degrees of success. Um, but she, she told me I was done and I did not agree with her. Um, especially because I had two other stories that I wanted to send. And she was just sort of like, look, I, I think, what are you doing? Like, I think you're just over there tinkering, like turning a sentence around and then turning it around <laughs> the other way. Like just send me the other two stories and, you know, she knew what she had. She knew. Yeah. She's actually the perfect agent for me because she knows that I will hold on to a story forever. And she's just sort of like, she has a sense of timing and the, you know, the, the sort of, um, pushiness quote unquote to, to know, like it's, it's time to let go. It's cooked. Let yeah, it go. It's cooked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she's great. So, so I sent her the other two stories that I was holding on to. She said, well, why are you holding? How long have you had these? <laughs> you know, she's like, I think these are great. Um, so she told me I was done and we, we started sending out the collection in maybe March or April of 2016. And how long did the sales pro I mean, how long did that process unfold? It took, uh, probably it was March, probably like two months, and then, um, for, for something to happen. Well, I mean, short story collections, like you said, are, they have a reputation for being very tough sales. Oh yeah. 
And you go to, I imagine you went to some bigs Mm -hmm. and then you went to Grey Wolf Mm -hmm. and then they snatched it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the bigs said no. Yeah. (laughs) It's not surprising Um, though. Cause like they, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine story collections. I mean, there's, I would say having watched publishing more than the average person over the past decade plus every year, there are a small handful Mm -hmm. of story collections that have happened to them. What's happening to yours. And I think as a, as a wager, (laughs) the odds just aren't good. The odds are never good, frankly, when it comes to book sales for literary fiction, but short fiction just makes it the, that much steeper of a climb. Right. Uh, and sometimes I think, you know, I think books land where they're supposed to, hopefully, uh, you know, like the best advice I ever got, which I then like, you know, like retell over and over again when it comes to people saying like, well, what do I look for in an agent? Same thing applies to a publisher. It's like, follow the enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Like that matters more than anything. Oh yeah. Like what house it is or what agency or what agent it's like, it sort of doesn't matter if the person is only lukewarm, like, okay, I'll try. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you have somebody who really believes, yes, then I think that's going to serve you better in the long run. Anyhow. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. So where were you when you got the news? I was, I was in Iowa. I was at home as I often was. I was one of the people <laughs> at Iowa who sort of got made fun of for never going anywhere. You would not see me at, not very often out at the writer's bar or you know, what, what, what is the stuff. writer's bar? What's it called? Isn't there like a novelist bar and, like, and then there's yeah, a poetry bar? The, the, well, that, that distinction is dissolving a little bit, but yeah, the, the fiction bar is the Fox head. Uh-huh. Um, and the poetry bar is, um, um, George's. I can only imagine some of the conversations that have been had at the Fox head over the years. Yeah. I need to get my microphones in there. You should. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that place is saturated with, we need to have that place wired. That would <laughs> yeah. be, it's be its own podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. All you got to do is set up the mic and it'll, the show will run just, itself. Just play the tapes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you didn't do that. Very, very infrequently. Um, you know, I would show up every once in a while, but you know, it wasn't someone who, who had to, weekly or in some cases daily <laughs> habit of, of going to the bar. What, what are you, like, so what were you doing? You were working. I was working. Um, and I had a group of friend, a group of friends I settled with. They were also working. So if we did go out to the bar, it was probably not to one of those bars. We had our own bar. Yeah. Um, or we would go to each other's apartments. Well, not to my apartment, which was not presentable, but it's one of their apartments. <laughs> Why not? Just you know, it was a very bare bones operation. Um, I had all my books shipped from New York, which is ridiculous. Um, but otherwise it was just mm, nowhere to sit, nowhere to sit. Or if there, you, know, you <laughs> wouldn't want to sit on it, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I went to real adults houses Yeah, and we would have like dinner parties or what have you, you know, that sort of thing. Like a grown um, up. Yeah. Like a grown but up. You were also, how old were you when you were doing Iowa? You were in your thirties. Yeah. Um, I think I arrived there when I was 36 or seven. That that's, strikes me as a good age to be having three years to go to work. Cause by then you're ready. Yeah. You're already like you're seasoned. I know it, it happens at different ages for people. Some yeah. people, you know, they're 22 and they're yeah. ready, but yeah. that strikes me as the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. I think, I think it was a good age. And most of the people that who are my closest friends there were, were older on the older side of the Iowa um, population anyway. 
Um, and that was great. You know, everyone was focused. Everyone, you know, had lived, had, had a vision for what they were writing. Um, so it worked well. And it's like, it's gotta be good. Like, first of all, you're kind of removed from everything. You're mm-hmm. in Iowa. So it's easier, easier maybe to concentrate, less distractions. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining. But then you're also in this like small community, uh, meaning like the, the Iowa writers workshop community. Yeah. That's sort of like self-reinforcing because everybody's into books and into literature yeah. and you're always having those conversations. And yep. I think it can kind of trick your brain into thinking like this is the center of the universe, Yeah, you know? And by this, I mean books. Right. Whereas, you know, in the real world, books are like shunted off to the, the yeah. peripheries, you yeah. know, and there they get to sort of be like the, on the main stage of your life. And you, you can be in a community of people who are like happy and eager to yeah. talk about it and think about it. And yeah. Yeah. It's sort of incredible in that way. I mean, it does look like, you know, sort of like your normal boring college town in, in a lot of ways it is that, but you know, I remember hearing that Iowa city was a UNESCO city of literature. And I was like, first of all, is it a city? I'm not quite sure of that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's incredible. Like the amount of, of literary energy and interest, um, that there is there, like the, the writers, like the frequency with which writers are visiting there is first of all, is, is incredible. The number of events, you can't go to them all. It's impossible, you know, and you would think, oh, there's nothing to do in Iowa. You might as well go to all the events. You can't, you just get, you, uh, I have yeah. to pick and choose. Yeah. Um, so in terms of a, a place for literature, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty incredible. Um, well, look, the workshop, uh, you know, if you think about the people who the writers who have come through that mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. over decades, yeah. when did it start? It's almost been, you know, it'd be like a century pretty soon yeah. that it's been around. Like, you know, it's a little ways off, I think, but yeah, I think still it started in 36, maybe. Okay. So we're not yeah. that far. Yeah. And you, you know, it's incredible to me. Like somebody has an idea, we're going to create this thing. Yeah. And it's, it was the first one yep. of its kind, I think. It, it was, yeah. And it provides this kind of safe harbor. Uh, you know, my argument is always that it, you're either living in a really cheap city, mm-hmm. preferably some sort of cultural capital. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, it's like hollowed out by some sort of like, you know, war. <laughs> that's, I mean, honestly, that's the way his, that, that's the way historically that it's happened. And then these communities come together and they they form and they perform a function not entirely dissimilar of like a MFA program, but you know po- in the post-war years, like those kinds of opportunities diminished, mm-hmm. and so then it's like you're on a campus, yeah, and that's where it happens. Yeah. And it's just I don't know. I I think that the people who run these programs or started these programs, and people who perf- uh, perform a similar function in some way in whatever. Uh, media it happens to be whether it's literature or the movies or comedy or you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. there's always going to be people who are facilitating mm-hmm. these kinds of communities and giving people an opportunity to interact with agents and to find their way professionally yeah they're like midwives yeah, yeah. you know and yeah. it's like it's super cool it is and it's sort of unsung um and i know like you said there are probably all sorts of like you know there's ickiness too sure yeah to sift through but like the basic the basic story seems sort of heroic to me yeah i mean i think you know i hear a lot of critique of mfa programs um i hear it a lot actually and when i was younger i was skeptical of mfa programs i was sort of like you know 
Toni Morrison didn't go to an MFA program. <laughs> Ralph Ellison didn't go to an MFA program. You know, right. that kind of thing. Right. Um, and, you know, not to discount the critiques, but I just think if you have a place where people are given the gift of time, if you have a place where teachers are devoted to their students um, and know how to teach and understand that you're not really teaching writing per se, you're sort of guiding, you're sort of, you know, um, providing an atmosphere, um, teaching people how to ask questions of their own work, really, more than follow these rules and you'll be a writer. I think that's great. Um, two or three years of that. And, as, as, and exposure to other talented yeah, writers that makes yeah. you raise your game. Exactly. If you're bringing pages to workshop and you know how good the other people are. Right. I think that's got to have an effect. Yeah. You know, force you to work a little bit harder. Yeah, for sure. I just think it accelerates the process. You know, I don't think you have to go to an MFA program. Um, but if you can, I can't imagine that I would have been able to write this book on my own time. I just, I just can't imagine it. And if I did, it would have taken, what, 15 years, 10 years? Who knows? That's right. Um, so it was a total gift for me. And, and now you're a Stegner fellow. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, I start in the fall. That's awesome. Thank you. And we were talking a little bit before we came on. Like, Usually that means you live up in Palo Alto. Yeah. But you can kind of you can configure it to suit your life or whatever. You might not do it that way. so. I'm not sure yet. But I do know of people who... Um, have commuted from where they currently live. Um, I'm not saying that I'm going to do that, <laughs> um, but it's possible if you live close enough and if you're disciplined and committed to enough to do the travel. Yeah. To do it every and week. How is it? Two years? It's two years. And it's just paid. Like you, you paid. get, you get to write for the next two years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a good fellowship. Oh yeah. That's one of yeah. the good, that's like the, I think it's actually the one. It's yeah. And if it's, it's not the one, the one, I want to know what the one is. It's considered the one for sure. And I've applied for that thing many times. Uh, it was a total shock to, to get it this year. That's awesome. Yeah. And do you know what, like, are you working on something? I've got a couple of new stories in the works. Um, and I also have this long story that I wrote in Iowa. Um, Ethan Kanan teaches a long story workshop. Um, he con considers it a different form than this short story, which I think he's right. What constitutes a long story? Um, in terms of page length, we were supposed to write stories between, I think, 40 and 60 pages. Okay. Um, and we also read long stories. Um, it's just a, a, a different slice of life. Um, it's not, maybe it's not even a slice of life. It's sort of a, um, it's approaching novella. Yeah. It's approaching novella. So the kinds of things you can do in a longer story, um, the kinds of subjects that you can take on, um, can become bigger and more interesting, um, a bigger cast of characters. You don't have to be as, um, confined to, you know, one or two or three characters the way you are in a 15 page story. Um, so something that I wrote for, for that class, I think I'm going to try to, to turn that into a novel, mm. mm -hmm. but right. I want to continue writing stories. That's, that's, Super important to me. I feel like there's going to be uh, publications that'll be chomping at the bit to publish your short fiction, right? <laughs> you think so? I think so. Well, well, we'll you should, see. You should be submitting. I mean, I'm assuming your agents out there dropping stories to people here and there, especially yeah. as the new ones get ready. Yeah, the new ones aren't quite ready yet, but I'm, I'm sure. 
she'll want to see me work. <laughs> I'm sure at some point she's going to tell you, like, just to let it go for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> she will, yeah. Definitely. But I'm going to make a prediction. Uh, you have, you have, have you been published in The New Yorker yet? No. That's going to happen. Just want to let you know. Wow. I guarantee it. Oh, yeah? I very, I very rarely make bold predictions like mm -hmm. this, but I feel so certain of it that I'm going to say it right here. Wow. Because I feel, especially if, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Yeah. But I think the fact that you're, uh, a lot of your fiction speaks to the city mm -hmm. helps it mm -hmm. because I think it's the New Yorker yeah. and they, you know, that's like sort of their, uh, their primary orientation. But it, even if it's not, I feel like that's coming for you. I'm going to put that out into the universe. Wow. I have some doubts, but from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'm, uh, I'm so grateful to you for making time. I know you're probably busy. Like there's a lot going on for you right now. Yeah. It's a hectic time. Um, you enjoying this part of it? Yes and no. Um, I'm introverted in the sense that I'm fine being out in public, but it, it really drains me. Yeah. Um, well, if you need to take a nap afterwards, I there's may, a couch I've right been here. eyeing that. <laughs> it looks really comfortable. <laughs> uh, well, try to, I mean, try to enjoy the moment because I feel like this book is getting such a great reception and people are so excited about yeah. it. Um, and you know, take naps in between. Yeah. And then I'll be very excited to see what you come up with next, but congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really grateful for what's been happening and I appreciate that. Okay. There you have it. That is Jamel Brinkley. His debut story collection is called a lucky man. It's out there from gray wolf press. All kinds of positive reviews. Check it out. A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley. Go get your copy. If you want to find him online, his uh, web address is jamelbrinkley.com. He's also on Twitter. His handle over there is at Jamel Brinkley. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to email me, if you have thoughts that you want to share, you want to tell me a story, you want to uh, kvetch, my address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support this program, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, this program has its own official app. It's the Other People app. It's free. It's entirely free. It's a great app. It's available wherever you get your apps. Wherever you get your apps, go get the Other People app. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a fine app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. So, I've never been uh, like up into like Lake Country in Michigan. I'm excited about it. I like uh, the idea of being out somewhere different, out of the city, in the wilderness, something like that. You know, that should be good. Maybe rent a bicycle, go for some hikes. I don't know if the water is going to be warm enough. I'm kind of a wuss when it comes to that. I guess I should jump in the lake, right? But if it's really ice cold, fuck that. I'm not doing it. I'm too old for that shit. I don't care. I don't need to prove anything. Don't pressure me. Twiggy was barking just a second ago before I came on, and I like walked over to the door to see what she was barking at. And she was barking at bees. There's like bees on our patio at night. I don't know why. Like crawling around on our patio. Not a lot of bees, but just like a couple. And it's nighttime, and she can like see these bees somehow, and she's barking at bees. What kind of fucking dog is this? 
I don't get it. I'm on vacation right now. I shouldn't even be podcasting, but I, you know, I don't like missing weeks. You gotta feed the stray cats. I know you guys have a lot of content options. I don't want to lose you. Stay with me. Please, stay with me. <laughs> Just stay with me. Don't go anywhere. Wait. Hello? Hello?